Hi, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Conde Nast Traveler that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today and celebrates why we're never staying home. I'm Meredith Carey, and this is my co-host, Lala Ercoglu. Hello. For our fifth episode, we're joined by Traveler contributor Sarah Khan, Huffington Post social media editor Roweda Abdelaziz, and returning guest and founder and CEO of the boutique travel firm Jet Black, Jessica Nabongo, who's joining us from Lesotho, I think, if I yes, remember I'm, correctly. Yes, I'm in Lesotho. <laughs> oh my gosh. The first question I have for everyone is just kind of if you could run through your earliest travel experiences, like the first time you can remember traveling and having that be a big deal for you. Um, Well, I guess I can start. Um, Yeah, so with me, I actually kind of grew up traveling. I was born in Canada, and then I moved to Saudi Arabia when I was about a year old. And I have been traveling ever since. I mean, my dad worked for the airlines there, so we literally would just go somewhere every month for long weekends, or we'd travel to India, where my family is originally from, for the summers, or visit family in the States. So I feel like it's just kind of always been there. And I don't really have like this first travel memory that sort of resonates with me. But I think some of my earliest experiences were going to Europe when I was maybe seven or eight, and those trips really stand out. And um, yeah, I think it's just kind of always been a part of my life. And how about you, Jessica? Um, Yeah, I've been traveling most of my life as well. My parents are Ugandan immigrants. So the first time that I went to Uganda was in 1991, I believe. So that was the first time I took that long transatlantic flight um, going home to see family. Uh, But also my parents, you know, we did domestic travel. I remember at six years old in 1990 going to Disney and getting my wings when I got on the plane. Um, We also did a lot of family holidays in the Caribbean, um, in Mexico, Canada. So just a number of different things. Travel has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Yeah, very similar to Jessica and Sarah. So my parents... um, are Egyptian immigrants and so immigrated to the U.S. in the early 90s. And so although there wasn't like a particular maybe moment I remember, but my parents would always take us back um, every other summer. And so very quickly after I was born, I remember my mom still being pregnant and flying. And I think that was like the thing that stuck out the most to me because I'm the oldest of four. But every other summer, we were always traveling um, back to Egypt to visit family and relatives. And I remember for a very long time, I would only be traveling like being based on the East Coast and just more East and never actually domestically traveling. So I was like, I grew up in New Jersey. And so it's like, I only knew Jersey and then everything more West. <laughs> and it's just really funny because you're like, have you ever been to the city? And I'm like, no, but I, you know, I've been to Cairo and it's great <laughs> and just as crowded. And so um, it was definitely something that was really interesting growing up. And you guys have all kind of made travel in whether it's like, you know, your job or your passion or just like the very essence of your being. Um, You've all made travel like such an integral part of your lives. Like why was that decision made or was it a conscious decision or did it just happen? Kind of how did you guys all end up in this space? Well, for me, I think, you know, like it's just, it's always been something that I've grown up taking for granted almost. And then when I, um, actually when I moved to the States, it started, we started traveling less and less. And then I would still go to visit family in India or visit family around the States. And then there was a period, I want to say in my mid twenties or early twenties after college where I barely traveled. I, I can't even, I think I might've gone like a good four or five years without going overseas, which was for me kind of unheard of. And so I think after that, I really recommitted to traveling as often as I could. And then I, when I went freelance, I was working as a, a travel editor in New York. And then when I went freelance, it's just, that's kind of was a perfect synergy for me of taking the thing I love to do most career wise and the thing I love to do most as a hobby and combining them together. 
What about you, Jessica? So I think for me, um, so by the time I graduated high school, I think I'd been to around 10 countries. And so travel has always been an integral part of my life. So even um, post-university, I remember my first transatlantic trip. I was, I think, 22. um, And it was Thanksgiving holidays. I was working full time, but I decided to spend Thanksgiving um, in Europe between Paris, Madrid and London visiting friends. And it was my first time taking a transatlantic flight without my family. And I thought to myself, my God, how am I going to survive this flight? You know, I was like seven hours on a plane by myself was unheard of to me. And, you know, I survived and I landed in Paris by myself. My French was pretty good and you know but the parisians if you're not speaking perfect (laughs) you can try as hard as you can people will still laugh at you so you know (laughs) so that first you know that first um being there by myself waiting for my friend who was coming in later that day it was a challenge and i cried but i survived and after that i was like okay i can do this and then um in 2008 i quit my corporate job i was working at a pharmaceutical company i quit my job because I wasn't I wasn't fulfilled, and I ended up moving to Japan to teach English for a year, and had never been to Asia. But I had such an amazing experience that at that point I decided I wanted to stay outside of the United States for three years. I don't know why three years. That was just what I said. And so, following Japan, I um, I traveled for like eight months. Um, part of it was solo. Part of it was meeting friends in different places. And then I, I moved to London to do my master's at the London School of Economics. And so while, you know, being based in London, traveling in Europe is cheap. And so I just kept traveling, kept traveling, kept moving to different countries for work. I worked for the UN and I was based in Rome, traveled more in um, in Europe and more in Asia. So since I have traveled so extensively back in 2015, I was talking to a friend of mine. I was at his concert. Um, he's a very famous rapper and he was engaged. And I said to him, oh, you know, you got, you should go to Africa for your honeymoon. Like that would be really cool. And he said to me, plan it. And I was like, okay. And so I planned this elaborate honeymoon for him, sent him to luxury properties, did a number of different things for him. And from there I decided to start Jet Black. And so now Jet Black, it's basically a boutique luxury travel firm and we focus on tourism in Africa, Central and South America and the Caribbean, mostly because I feel like there's so many countries in these regions that people don't often visit. And because I've visited a significant portion of them, I feel like I have a sort of competitive advantage in that way. And as a result of my various networks, I've been able to work with a lot of high net worth clients and send them to places that they've never even heard of, um, but that are great places for people to travel. And that's what I love about being able to not only see the world, but also be able to share the world, not only with my followers, but also with my clients um, who have the money and have the access, but maybe don't necessarily know where to visit. Travel for me, it's so much of my lifeblood. And I mean, at this point, I've been to 107 countries and territories, and it's almost, you know, as if I can't sit still and everyone makes fun of me. And I think that's sort of why in 2009, I named my blog the Catch Me If You Can, because it's like, you know, there's just this thing of people never know where I am or, you know, people calling me um, Carmen San Diego. <laughs> I love it. And Rueda, you don't travel for work. You're a social media editor. So how does this kind of fit into your life? 
Yeah. I mean, even before uh, I kind of landed into my job and my career, I think travel for me and for my family, just the way I grew up, was always seen as a luxury, um, if not an obligation. So in a way that it's like, okay, we were obliged to go back and to visit home uh, because that that was home for my parents, them being immigrants. And so for me, it was always, it started off as fun or as a child, I thought, oh, this is fun. Like I'm going for vacation. Um, And I think later as an adult, I started learning that there were actual purposes behind them. Either somebody was sick or someone needed help. And so it wasn't always fun, um, but I was kind of like in this bubble of this little girl on a big plane and, and going to hang out on a beach um, in, in the Middle East. And so that was great until um, I started realizing um, sometimes it wasn't for leisure. And um, just growing up, and I think this is something that we'll probably address later, I think travel um, is a luxury for a lot of people who are not in a certain socioeconomic class. And so that was, uh, for me, uh, growing up, you know, my, my family didn't have a lot of wealth. And so it was like, if you're not obliged to go um, back home, back to Egypt for a significant purpose, then travel was seen as a commodity that uh, we couldn't afford or was not, quote unquote, necessary or um didn't provide or enhance your life in any way. It was just like you stay home and you study and and you work on other things. And so I think for the longest time, travel seemed impossible and like this like really fun, cool thing that I couldn't necessarily grasp at, um, whether it was for financial reasons or family reasons and things of that sort. And I think later in my adult life when um, I was able to go out and to travel, whether it was through work or through pleasure, it kind of like just changed my perspective entirely. And I'm just like, okay, wait, now I understand why people have been doing this for a really long time. Like there's actually much more. And so I feel like that perspective had shifted greatly um, post-college, post-starting to work. And so I feel like I'm still in this really interesting phase of evolving as to how travel is an integral part of my life, but also like in what sense, like what is the purpose of travel and how do I shift that from something that was something so serious and sticking to your culture and finding um, purpose behind it. I think that's really interesting because sort of, if you don't grow up sort of being taught that travel is like a a possibility and something that you can do right. when you know free to do whenever you want i think it can feel like a really impenetrable field and i know in our facebook group a lot of the questions that are posted are, are how do you get to travel so much how do you get to travel for work how do i start you know visiting all these countries and you know i think in some ways the travel industry doesn't necessarily make it feel possible like right. it's exclusive it's very glamorous yeah yeah um you can actually go back and listen to jessica's answer to a similar question on our first episode when we talked to her and cynthia drescher another one of our contributors about how they actually make it work and how they travel for a living um, and the sacrifices that they've had to make to do that but i was just wondering who you guys think the travel industry because we were just talking about it kind of excluding people um, because of their socioeconomic standing you know, who you think the industry as it stands today is catered to? So I think generally when it comes to traveling and the traveling industry, um, because it's a luxury, um, I think for, for most people, but I think just like most mainstream industries travel or otherwise they tend to cater to your average, maybe middle class uh, white family. Um, and so being a brown person, being a Muslim, being a very obvious Muslim because uh, I wear hijab every single day, um, traveling has a lot of anxieties um, for my people, um, if I may be so privileged to speak on their behalf momentarily. And so I think uh, there's this whole movement behind um, 
flying while Muslim. And I think this kind of really encompasses the travel industries and the anxieties of, of flying while Muslim and just traveling while Muslim. And I think it encompasses a lot of it is the physical aspect of traveling. So it's like whether you're traveling on a plane or on a train or driving or whatever the case may be. And, um, and a lot of it is just, it's not pleasant. And so when you think of travel, you think of vacation and fun and relaxing. And I feel like unfortunately a lot of that gets lost. Um, just being in an airport, I think is terrifying for many reasons. And I think it's just kind of been a downward spiral for a really long time, unfortunately. So, which is really interesting and ironic because when you think of um, like first generation Americans or Americans who come from like immigrant families, they tend to do the most traveling and it may not necessarily be traveling for leisure, but it is like kind of going back to like where their family's from and visiting um, in addition to traveling for leisure. So if you, I think we look up like the markup of to the type of women that travel, you do see a lot of people of color, um, but it's not necessarily for the same reasons as to maybe why a white woman travels, for example. Um, and so, and I, I think like, even if you think into like most recent events, there have been like a terrifying amount of, um, Muslim folks who have been like forcibly removed off of planes right and I think like that's just one thing a lot of Muslims think about and so um, for example when I travel I think I give a lot more thought as to where I'm going to maybe like the you know like an average maybe white person for example as to some of the things I'm thinking are like um, how tolerant is the city how accepting are they and do I feel comfortable do I feel safe um, especially if I'm thinking of like the United States and, and a place that's maybe like not New York or not California or not super diverse. And for Huffington Post, you went on the HuffPost bus tour. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, HuffPost launched a bus tour a couple months ago. I think it was uh, late September, early October. And it was kind of in response to the campaign and where we, as like plenty of other media organizations, kind of like really wrongly predicted the outcome of the presidential election. And then we realized um, a lot of the sentiment um, a lot of folks had to mainstream media is that like, well, you guys don't understand us in middle of America. So we launched this bus tour that visited like over 20 cities in seven weeks. Um, and it was just like this big green bus. And we kind of went on this listening tour to stop and everywhere that wasn't either the east or the west coast. I think the most east we went um, was somewhere in Pennsylvania and the most west was like maybe out in Arizona. And um, so when I got my my dates, I was like very like very consciously looking at these cities and some of these cities I, you know, was like terrified to be honest. And I was just like, okay, you know, I don't really know how people are gonna react to me in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Like I've I've never really been there. Um, which is very different because then um I also on that same week I went to Dearborn, Michigan, which is like the number one populous um or has the most Arabs like in that town. Um, I think like right after New Jersey. So like going to Dearborn was like fun. It was like taking a mini trip back to the Middle East and speaking to people in Arabic and seeing Muslims everywhere. And then like maybe stopping in Fort Wayne, Indiana where it was like literally impossible to find someone that looked like me. And so there are a lot of like safety concerns. And obviously I brought that up to like our managers and our editors and they were great and everything was planned well. And um, thankfully nothing happened, but I think there was a lot more happening and a lot more thought process that I had to go through personally 
um, of like, okay, so like, what is my plane ride going to look like there? Like, you know, I need to get there probably much earlier than my coworkers because uh, there's a very high chance I'm going to be randomly profiled. And Mm -hmm. a lot of these things that I think cause anxieties that make the travel industry less appealing to Muslim women, um, especially obviously dress the hijab wearing Muslim women. And so I think um, it's unfortunate um, and I hope it changes. Um, I don't, I'm not very like optimistic in terms of the changing happening anytime soon. Um, but yeah, so that, that's just an example of me like traveling for work and, um, having to take a lot more into consideration and checking in with my family a lot more and just being very aware of my surroundings, traveling in groups. And you, you feel like a kid again, because these are the things like your parents are telling you to do. And, um, I feel like unfortunately it's just a whole other stress level that I wish I didn't have to go through. And Sarah, as a Muslim who doesn't wear a hijab, like who, in your opinion, does the travel industry cater to how do you kind of approach your travel does that identity come into play at all when you are making those decisions what Rueda was saying was kind of interesting because I sort of it's a little bit obviously in contrast to my experience as a Muslim woman traveling because as someone who wears hijab it's not necessarily something that I'm I, I tend to float under the radar I can look a bit ethnically ambiguous too and so but at the same time, I have a very Muslim name. My full name is Sayyida Sara Ali Khan. So I definitely get my random searches. And I'm always, you know, getting those extra searches when you're coming back into the country. And I think I, the first time last year, I actually had an experience where I didn't get the four S's. And I actually just boarded a plane normally. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do with all this extra free time and dignity I have. Like, this is amazing. Um, and so it, there are, you know, I, I don't have the same level of experience and the same level of anxieties. But it's definitely always there. Um, especially now, I'm sure you've seen in the news lately, there's been news of Muslims getting their global entry randomly revoked. And I only just got my global entry last year. And I'm like, I just got used to not having to take off my shoes. Don't make me go back to that again. So, um, I mean, and I, it's interesting, like what Rueda was saying about her trip through the States. So I pitched a story earlier this year or last year now. Oh, wow. It's already 2018. Mm. But, um, about, and the way I pitched it was basically, I just want to travel around America as a Muslim woman. And it was different because I was specifically picking, you know, as a travel story. So I was picking travel destinations. Um, I did, you know, I wanted to go to a rodeo and I went to Wyoming. I did Nashville to go down Honky Tonk Row. Um, and I picked all these places. And even though I knew that they were touristy and it probably wouldn't be the same as going to Fort Wayne, Indiana, everyone I told I was doing this, they were like, don't go alone, don't go alone. And, you know, like, it just seemed like this kind of weird feeling that like, I need to be more careful than I am, maybe. And that was kind of jarring. And just as far as like the general question about who is the industry cater to, I definitely think it's very white, very white male, or just very millennial. And, you know, when you look at the marketing, and you look at the social media, you definitely see that that is a dominant narrative. And that's a dominant traveler that you see out there if you just do a random Google search, too. And, um, And I think, you know, I'm hoping that's changing. It's taking a while, but I think people are trying to, are seeing that a lot of the marketing money should be geared towards people of color that are traveling because they actually are doing it in huge numbers. But um, I think it's taking a while to get there. And it's, it just, it would be nice to see more people like me out there. Well, then if you think of the sort of stereotypical solo female traveler image it's a white woman doing yoga at the edge of a cliff exactly and there are so many instagram accounts where you're looking and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and it's literally just like pretty white people staring into mm-hmm. the distance is kind yep. of like the the description we give it here because that's <laughs> like 
such a it really is it's such a tiny part of um of who is actually traveling i mean the world is much larger than the u.s um so obviously it's like it cannot possibly be just white people traveling um Mm -hmm. and i would also say that when we kind of pose this question to the group um you know we asked how people in the women who travel group have felt you know excluded at all from the travel industry and one of the women, Adrian, who um, spoke up, had said um, that she felt that the travel industry needed to show more people of color in their media ads, so like print, TV, online, mm-hmm. because, you know, people, period, spend significant amounts of money on travel and should be represented. And I know, Jessica, you have recently dealt with this, like in the last week, mm-hmm. and we've talked a lot about it. Um, but I know that you've had issues with that, with working with brands because you are a social media influencer. You know, I, I agree with what um, everyone has said so far. And I think the other thing regarding who the industry caters to, it's not only white, you know, very male, um, we know what the female archetype is, but we do have to also talk about body type, right? Um, and that it's always people who are very physically fit, which as it relates to the U.S. domestic market, that is not the average person. You know, the average person in America is not physically fit. So I think that's just another layer to um, the exclusion. Just as far as that goes, for the most part, especially on social media, I see that. But if you look at actual travel show hosts, the women are always picture-perfect white women. And then I feel like the men are often more portly, middle-aged, you know, hairier men. And it's just kind of (laughs) interesting that when it comes to travel TV shows, you want your guys to be kind of old and not necessarily appealing, but you still need the women to be, you know, straight out of the bikini. Oh, yeah, they can be old and worldly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You can actually read um, a story about why there are so few female travel hosts um, on CN Traveler um, because we kind of looked into that earlier this year because it is incredibly frustrating um, Mm -hmm. just period to find women hosting travel content. So I want to, before I get into like um, (laughs) the big issue that I had with the brand recently, I want to talk a little bit about my actual traveling experiences. And, you know, I will never, I can never understand what it's like to be a Muslim traveler and specifically a Muslim traveler who, um, you know, covers her hair either with hijab, niqab, burqa, whatever it is, but you know, very visibly Muslim. I can't imagine what that is like. But for me, as someone who is unmistakably African, who chooses to wear my hair short, um, I have had numerous, countless um, incidences that have stripped me of my dignity in a number of ways. Um, the the immigration that I have the biggest issue with in the border that I find often difficult to cross is the United States border. I was born in the United States to Ugandan immigrants. Yes, I have an American passport. Recently, I also obtained my Ugandan passport. As you can imagine, when I enter the US, I use my US passport. I've had a number of incidences um, trying to enter the US on my American passport. Um, one that really, really stands out is I was coming back from Ethiopia. Um, I landed in Dallas. I got through immigration without an issue, which is rare. And I get to the customs. And at that time, they didn't have the um, kiosk. So, you know, you just gave the customs officer your paper. They look at it and you go. But this officer asked me for my passport, which was strange. But of course, I, I give it over. So it's in my purse. I take it out. I give her my passport. She looks at my passport. She looks at me and she asks me for another form of ID. 
And I said, excuse me? And she said, I can't tell if this is you on the passport. So again, understanding she's looking at my American passport that has already been stamped by a US immigration officer and demanding that I show her another piece of ID because my American passport is not enough to let me, a US citizen, into the United States. And so like that has been a recurring thing for me that I'm constantly, I've taken to agriculture checks, taken to secondary, I, I was just traveling to Sri Lanka in October and upon exiting upon exiting the United States, I swiped my boarding pass, I'm going to the jetway, there were some Homeland Security officers, white passengers passed by in front of me, the um, Homeland Security stopped me, and again, I'm exiting, going to get on a plane to go to Amsterdam. And um, the officer asked me for my passport. I give it to him. I gave him my Ugandan passport because that's what my Sri- my Sri Lankan visa was in my Ugandan passport. And he asked me, "What is your status in the United States?" And I said, "I'm an American citizen." He said, "Well, do you have a passport?" I'm like, "Yes." And then he proceeds to ask me, "How long do you intend to stay outside of the country?" And so for me, it's like, it's it, it's for me, it's not only the fact that I'm black. Black. It's the fact that I am African. It is the fact that they often don't believe an African can be an American, which is ridiculous because anyone can be American. Um, but another thing that we don't talk about because this is something that is often unique to the black space is colorism. I'm incredibly dark skinned. So I, I stand out everywhere that I go. Um, and I've had other issues with other immigration, but the mo- the issue again that I have the um it's the US immigration that gives me more issues than any other country in the world. And that is ridiculous because I'm an American, a born American citizen. Not even that naturalized citizen should have to deal with such a thing. Um, but you know, just pointing that out. And it's funny because Sarah mentioned the four S's. I never knew what that was until I was flying back from Rome to Chicago and they wouldn't let me check in at the kiosk and I'm trying to figure it out. And then something about these four S's and I asked what's going on and they're like, you know, this is from coming from high up. No one ever explained to me why that happened. I still, almost every time I come back through Amsterdam, I get flagged. So that for me, I understand the level of anxiety and that's just with immigration. Now, when it comes to airlines, um, I'm diamond medallion with Delta and the most, I've had a number of experiences that I won't recount, but the most recent one which threw me off. I, when I was flying actually Atlanta to Johannesburg, I was flying um, flying first class and I came up to the desk, they were boarding zone three and I walked to the front. And the lady says to me, we've already boarded first class, you have to go to the end of the line. Are you okay. kidding me? No. You're kidding. Oh no. <laughs> I wish I <laughs> My fists are clenched. <laughs> so imagine, and I said to her, excuse me? And she said, We've already boarded first class, go to the end of the line. And so, you know, it's one of these things for me as a black person who's grown up privileged that it's like my privilege is meeting oppression. And that's the crossroads that I'm at right now. And it's this thing of there's no way I can be diamond medallion and be black, you know what I mean? And not be a celebrity, right? Because black celebrities enjoy a certain different type of privilege because they're recognized. But I'm not a celebrity. Um, And so these are the sorts of challenges I have to deal with almost every time I'm flying. So you can imagine how emotionally taxing it is. Um, I cried. I was crying on my Instagram um, two months ago because I had been flagged again. They refused to tell me why. So that's just the travel anxiety that I think is very similar that you guys have mentioned. And regarding brands, um, I think some of you may have come across it, but 
basically last week I reached out to the Four Seasons in Nevis for a complimentary say, which is standard practice for an influencer. You know, not only am I an influencer, I'm a travel writer. Um, and I also own a luxury boutique firm. So Four Seasons is very in line with not only the places that I like to stay, the places that many of my followers like to stay, the places that my clients like to stay, but also the places that readers of Condé Nast like to stay, Bloomberg, where I've been featured, Inc., um, and other outlets that I write for or have been featured in. And long story short, um, Four Seasons came back, um, their PR rep for the Nevis property, and said, we've reviewed your profile and your social account and your demographic is not in line with our brand. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because to be fair, I hadn't given them, dem them any demographic information about my followers, my clients or anything. So I follow up for clarification on what she means by demographic. And she tells me, um, although your photography is beautiful, we do not feel that it reaches luxury clientele, which is in line with our brand. And for me, this was hurtful. Um, you know, it was a slap in the face that not only takes away from my experience as a traveler, my experience as a travel expert, my preferences as a traveler, the preferences of my clients. I've sent multiple clients to multiple Four Seasons properties, so they've taken tens of thousands of dollars from my company. Um, and for me, what it boils down to is because now, of course, I'm being attacked online. I wrote a long story on Medium. People are saying you're just mad because they wouldn't give you a free stay. And this isn't about race. Your profile is more adventurous and outdoors, all of these different things. But the thing for me is I'm not only a travel influencer, I'm a writer. And I, you know, working with you guys, working on this podcast, Condé Nast readers are Four Seasons clients. The readers of the Bloomberg article I did where Bloomberg noted that I was a distinguished travel hacker, those are Four Seasons potential clients. But for them, or this woman specifically, it was short-sighted. She didn't look at any of my press. She didn't acknowledge the fact that I have a travel agency. And she assumed that all of my followers, that none of my followers go to the Four Seasons. So I did a poll and found that 33% of the respondents have been to the Four Seasons. Several people sent me messages that they had been to multiple Four Seasons properties. And so it was it was just very short-sighted in just taking a glance at my page and saying, okay, there's no way people who follow me or people who are interested in me could be the clientele of the Four Seasons. And now there's, I mean, it's, you know, it's gone crazy on Twitter and on Instagram and Every, you know, some people are, most people are supporting me. Many people are not supporting me. Um, and, and this thing of like, they don't think it's about race. Go to any of the Four Seasons handles. All of their um, properties have handles. There's the main handle. You will not find a picture of a black person who's not an employee of the Four Seasons. So for people who are saying, well, no, it's clear you're, you're not in line with their brand. My blackness is not in line with their brand. And that's what it is. And I will say today, they reached out, they made an apology. Um, towards the end of the apology, they said, we recognize that there is much more that we can do to ensure that we are better representing our diverse guest base. And so I wrote back, because they wrote this um, on Instagram, so it was public. And I wrote back and you know, I said, well, I'm interested to know what are you gonna do? Because we can't stop it here at you give me an apology. I don't care about complimentary stays because people are saying, well, would 
you know, they didn't offer you a comp stay. I'm not interested in staying there. But what I am interested in doing is pushing this conversation forward. I thank you guys at Condé Nast for helping to push this conversation forward because this isn't about me. If I want to, I can go stay at the Four Seasons. I can afford to go and stay at the Four Seasons. The reason I ask for free stays is because then I promote the brand. I send my clients to these places, things of that nature. But I just hope that um, you know, I just hope that we can move this conversation forward and not stop it at these public apologies. You know, obviously there are steps. There are obvious steps that can be made to just, you know, represent the the guests that are staying not only there, but anywhere, the people who are flying, the people who are spending their money, um, the people who are enjoying travel, um, just as much as anyone who is currently featured on those Instagrams. Like, what would you say are those steps that no one is clearly taking that just don't, like, that just doesn't make any sense? So what, what do you guys see as, as the opportunities that people are just missing? I think for in terms of, of flying, um, I think there needs to be some sort of like sensitivity training, um, especially when you're talking about um, airlines, personnel, attendants. Um, there just needs to be some education because it, it's gone a little ridiculous, right? Like so you have a couple of Muslim people who just, you know, happen to be speaking in Arabic. There were like a couple of cases of like, I think a number of them, like uh, Muslim women or not necessarily women saying the word like inshallah, God willing, right? And it's just so embedded in the language. Language. And something as small as that is like, you know, people have been kicked off the plane for it. And so understanding that um, not to be afraid. And, and the only way these folks are not going to be afraid if we stop disassociating the stereotype that people who look a certain way are scary people and do bad things. And I think it just like really comes down to that basic level of mm-hmm. sensitivity training, diversity training. Um, in addition, I think we just need to hire more people of color. Um, I think these positions are just largely filled with people who um, just, you know, even though you're traveling, you're, they're not interacting, they're not having these conversations. It's still very much policing. It's an abuse of power. And I think that's where a lot of the situations come. You know, when you have a TSA officer who is going to pull you over and detain you for hours, if you have a flight attendant who, if you look a certain way and happen to speak a different language, um, you're afraid of being kicked off. You know, to the point that the way the community is reacting, um, it, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> like, there's this joke within the Muslim community. It's just like, oh, you're flying? Okay, like, put on the whitest clothes you got like go like go to Calvin Klein go to Lacoste you know like throw on your jeans like don't you dare wear anything cultural um and with me like with my family we very specifically speak English anytime like we're traveling whether it's driving through a border or flying through a border and we shouldn't have to police the way we dress the way we act how we look um because we're afraid so I think that we need to lessen the anxieties and the stresses that uh, Muslim women need to think of when they're traveling. And so it comes to the point, like when you're traveling, like their standard practice, like put on your most Western clothes possible. You get to the airport extraordinarily early, unnecessarily so. And then um, a lot of, including me and my friends and my family, and especially after the Muslim ban that came down, it's just being very strategic of like where you're going um, and always 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 having a lawyer's phone number on hand um i remember my mom was coming back from egypt when the muslim ban came down and even though it wasn't on on the list um i was just terrified because you know my mom's a naturalized citizen um her english isn't very strong she wears hijab also and um i was just like 
like ready, like had a lawyer, like told the lawyer, I was like, look, I'm going to call you any second. Like just God forbid something happens. And, and thankfully um, that wasn't the case. But I know plenty of Muslim women who like don't travel without knowing that they like have a lawyer on hand. And I think also beyond the flying point, I think um, just like basic amenities um, at hotels and, and places <laughs> still don't cater to Muslim women. I think it's so fascinating that you still find a Bible in every drawer in every single hotel that you go to. And I think that's just so remnant to like how ingrained um, like Christianity and this Anglo-Saxon culture is still very much into the travel industry, you know? Um, and I remember just like being so young and as a kid and just like picking it up and just like not understanding like what, like why? Like I don't, I don't really get it. And so I think, you know, if you're going to include maybe a religious text, like include one of each, you know, of, like of anyone or just don't include them at all. Also, like I don't know, I'd be interested to see the statistics of like how many people actually, you know, like read the Bible um, or just like basic food amenities. I think we're starting to see a little bit of an increase of like kosher and like halal food um, included on the airplane or in like restaurants and hotels, um, but also not enough. And so, you know, basically Muslim people have to like find a way to just like find basic food that they can eat um, and things of that sort. So I think there are solutions and, and there are things we can do to make it more inclusive, both in hotels, um, in places, while flying. And I think also just being very aware. I think the travel industry tries to distance itself from like politics. But I think being aware of a situation and just understanding what's going on and like stepping your best foot forward because it's a customer service industry. Right. And I think the mindset is still there's only one type of customer they're going for, kind of like what Jessica was saying. And I think if they get over that hump and um, talk to people of color, get better. And unfortunately, unfortunately, you've seen like this new hub of young entrepreneurs of color starting their own like luxury and non-luxury brands. What? I don't um, know I think about there that. is like a Muslim version of an Airbnb oh called Musbnb, which I think is really <laughs> cute. <laughs> I don't know oh anything God, about is. it, but it like <laughs> popped up on my like my Facebook for like a suggested page yeah. to like and I looked at it. And so it included right? <laughs> and it's just like one, the name's adorable, but also it d includes all the things that a Muslim person is thinking about. Um and I feel like just one thing that comes to mind super quickly is um I had like gotten an Airbnb um somewhere in, in Montreal sometime back and booked in everything was great and then I think that's when the San Bernardino attack had happened um, out in California and I remember I had shooting her a message just like confirming something like I think whether they had like toiletries or whatever and the host just didn't get back to me and all I could think about was just like she's going to cancel it any second now just like because like of this terrible attack that happened and like I like already booked my ticket and what am I going to do and just I feel like being aware of the things that happen and understanding um, the person that you're hosting um, will go a long way and on the flip side I remember getting another place and I remember reading in the reviews um, a lot of like customers were saying like when they stayed at this one woman's like place she had left them like this bottle of champagne like as a welcoming gift and as someone who doesn't drink and I was just like okay that might be awkward because <laughs> what if she gets offended that I didn't drink it and then I remember like going into the Airbnb and they were just like a bottle of like juice and I was just like wait <laughs> she knew and like remember feeling so beyond touched and just like excited and happy and I'm just like this is definitely not a coincidence like she knows like she did her homework and like that just goes such a long way that I feel like it's only of a benefit to the travel industry that they don't see it they they continue to see us as the scary foreign other thing that we don't know how to cater to so we're just gonna kind of like 
push them away. Well, and, you know, the whole point of the travel industry is to be hospitable and to host and to share culture. culture. And, you know, the woman that owned that Airbnb was being a good host. Right. She was being a thoughtful, good host. And it's, you know, it's so strange to think that huge sways of this multi-million dollar industry, probably billion dollar industry, isn't accommodating yeah. Yeah. a huge part of the population. Right. Like you can selfishly capitalize it on if yeah. you want. You, like you don't have to money. be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't need it to be nice. <laughs> and I think also, um, you know, w- what you said about how the travel industry tries to distance itself from politics, but to travel is a political act. It's a political choice. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're choosing to cross borders and board planes and have a cultural exchange with people from different parts of the world and, you know, there are, you know, there was a travel ban where countries were not allowed to travel to to this country, and that is political. Right. And so, and I and I think that what I'd actually be interested to hear is um, maybe Sarah, you can speak to this as a you know someone who's traveling all the time and in your writing all the time is, you know, have you seen? progress made are you seeing steps being made i mean i think there's probably baby steps being made because at the end of the day it comes down to the bottom line and i think people are slowly starting to see that there is a huge section of the world that actually has a lot of money and we've seen it already in fashion with a lot of the brands that cater to the middle eastern market so i think there and you know there's some places that do it really well like um cape town has a really big muslim community and they have suddenly been investing a lot of money in kind of building that infrastructure and catering to the halal tourism segment because they're realizing that with all that they have to offer both just general you know beauty and act, act nature things and active adventurous things but also the wi- widespread availability of halal food and mosques everywhere and every mall has a prayer room so they realize that there's a lot of people out there that probably would be really interested in going to cape town for that. And so I think, you know, there are people that are realizing that it is a pretty big market and they should cater to it, but I think it's happening pretty slowly. And I think for me personally, I speak to things more from the media and marketing side of it and what we could be doing. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, we're shaping the voice that's out there, the perspectives that are out there about travel. And I think having diversity in writers and and on-air hosts, and then also on staff, the people that are sort of shaping the narratives and coming up with it, I think that also needs to happen a lot more than it is i think there is slowly becoming more awareness to that and some people do it better than others but i think that's you know a pretty and like i was living in south africa for a few years as you know and um i remember you know i was at this one event and i feel like it's interesting because that's where i became a lot more aware of some of these different dynamics at play because i would go i went to this event hosted by a big tourism company and i was the only non-blonde person there and this is south africa you know and i think Things like that often happens because, you know, the people organizing it, best intentioned people, I'm sure. But it's just they just don't they don't think outside of what they know as far as who they could be reaching out to. And I think that's a problem. And I think if you have more diverse people on staff in your marketing teams and in your editorial teams, then you kind of are able to think outside the box a bit. And because the people are out there, the writers, the influencers, the potential talent, the clients, everyone's out there. You just have to know how to get them. 
I mean, I think there's also like this media and marketing responsibility that um, a lot of these like major organizations just yeah. tend to oversee. Um, and a lot of it is is like making uh-huh. places seem exotic. And, and there's this interesting, there's this book written by Edward Said called Orientalism. And it's about making, um, looking at Arabs and Middle Easterners as like this exotic other. And I think that also influences um, how people see travels when they <laughs> want to think about traveling to the Middle East or like I want to like see the desert and smoke a hookah and just like like all these like stereotypical things and buy a belly dancing outfit and it's just like then that you kind of lose the cultural sensitivity and so when people do go and travel to these countries it's just like a hot mess and, and disrespectful and I feel like we as major organizations also exactly. have or like media marketing organizations have a huge responsibility as to how they're portraying yeah. other countries and on the flip side making a place look much more dangerous than it is it's like don't go there like somebody will kidnap you or um, if you go to the Middle East you have to wear a headscarf because like otherwise men will harass you and just like really made up and ridiculous things and I feel like that's a whole nother conversation we can have just well, on a little just on a tiny aside um because my dad's Turkish. I've talked about him on this podcast before. Me and my parents have this joke that whenever the sort of Middle East or like Tur- <laughs> and Turkey are depicted in a movie or in an ad and you hear the like tinkly like yeah. Middle Eastern yeah. music and we're like, ah, the Middle East. Yeah. Like the snake coming out of a little box. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying earlier about like millennials and people of color who are like creating their own space and especially who are making, you know, the places that have traditionally been quote unquote exotic be like realistic. Um, Jessica, with your company, with Jet Black, like when you are approaching the trips that you are taking other young people, young affluent people on, um, like what is the thought process that goes into you planning those trips, making them like I know it's a buzzword, but making them legitimately authentic. Mm-hmm. So I think um, for me specifically, when it comes to trip planning, the people that I do, um, the people who are my clients, the first thing, the most important thing to them is their accommodations. And I always put my clients in five-star accommodations because that's the most important thing. And then what I try to do, depending on the client to make it luxury, is that I offer you know, um, a specific list of restaurants. I put together excursions. Most of the countries that I send my clients to, I've been, I know people on the ground. Um, so I'll connect them with like a local fixer who can you know, really give them amazing experiences. Um, I do, I send a lot of clients to Cuba and I always use the same tour guides and I always get amazing feedback because these are, you know, obviously they're Cuban tour guides, but they also really want to share their local culture. They'll take them off the beaten path. I mean, everybody loves La Guarita in uh, Havana, but there's also a, a bunch of other amazing restaurants. And so I really, for me, I feel like a lot of the localized experiences is through the food. Um, and so that's one place that I really try to focus, but I also wanted to sort of chime in about like what they can do, what we can do or how brands can start to, you know, sort of become more inclusive. I think, uh, I think again, the sensitivity training is so important. I hadn't, um, I was on a Delta flight and flying first class from Detroit to New York a couple months ago. And I had a flight attendant, she was white and, um, very, you know, whatever, like she gave me my drinks, she gave me my my food, my snacks, whatever. And so during that trip, which was, it's like an hour and a half, 
I thought to myself, wow, this woman treated me exactly the same as she treated everyone else in this cabin. That is something that doesn't happen to me so much so that it stood out. And I like Delta gives us when you're certain level, they give us these little pieces of paper and we can give employees like points for, you know, good service, whatever. And I told her, Thank you for treating me equally. She did not privilege me above anyone else. She treated me equally. And it's so rare that I receive equal treatment in the first class cabin that I had to point that out by rewarding her with these points because that's how rare it is. And I think if we're if they're really going to move forward, I think it has to go beyond hiring people of color, because what happens is they hire one person of color. That one person of color is sitting in a room with all white people. They a lot of times will not be brave enough to speak out about these things because they're many times sometimes they're just happy to be there. They don't want to rock the boat. I think consulting is probably the way to go. Consulting with travel influencers, travel writers, people of color who actually are extensively traveled. Unfortunately, a lot of times PR and marketing people who work in the traveling travel industry are not extensively traveled. And so I think there needs to be more consultation with the people who are out here every day hopping on and off of these flights to really get down to the nitty gritty and to understand um, like how they can be more inclusive. And I think because I spend so much time on the continent um, visiting five-star properties, uh, I think the other thing, and I think about this exotification of these locations, it's about decolonizing travel. So all of the ads that I see for travel in Africa show white people in, you know, the beautiful safari outfits. And so I think, you know, they can't imagine, a lot of my followers are African and I always get messages like, wow, I never thought I could go the places that you go because they never see themselves there. When I go to these safari lodges, I'm the only black person sitting at the dinner table as opposed to serving. You know what I mean? And that happens so often. And sometimes I sort of feel like I get looks from the other guests because they're kind of like, well, who is this? Because there's always this thing of she's black. She's here in the same space as me. She must be a celebrity because it's like the only place, the only way that um, black people can exist in these luxury spaces is if they're celebrities. That's the default idea. People often ask me, oh, are you a model? And I'm like, no. You know, I'm just a normal person. My face just looks like this. You know what I mean? And so (laughs) (laughs) this decolonization of um, travel, because I want to see more Africans traveling in Africa, more Arabs traveling in the Middle East, more Asians traveling in Asia, because there's this thing of like where a lot of people are flocking to Europe. Because that's, you know, that's what it is. It's like, oh, Europe, that's where we're supposed to go on vacation. We all go to Europe and leave our respective continents to get to Europe. And I'm like, hey, why not explore your own continent? But a lot of times it's because it's not marketed to the people living on those continents as being for them. And I also think a lot of the airline industries, I know this is slowly changing, but especially in Africa, are there, the flights are in and out of that country for the most part to other like to the US or to Europe and there is not as much intra-African airlines you guys can both correct me if I'm totally wrong but it's definitely I think it is slowly becoming easier but I think it is it has been traditionally incredibly difficult to travel exactly to travel within Africa if you are African and I think that is so unfortunate and I think that it's it is changing. I know that Ethiopian Airlines are yeah. introducing new routes, but I think that historically that that has not been an option. 
And then just on the yeah, whole heard- topic of the India, I mean, of the um, the exoticism, I'm Indian American. And just I feel like so much of the travel writing about India becomes so one note because it's just, you know, people going and writing about like, oh, the colors and oh, the spices. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. And I feel like if you have more Indians writing about India, you'll, you know, for us, the spices and the colors, it's like, all right, yeah, that's no big deal. You'll, you'll get to more of the story because you didn't waste, you know, a thousand words talking about the smells, right? And so I feel like just having different people telling different stories will give you a completely different perspective on a country. Also, I think we also need to get rid of this, like you only go to certain African, Asian countries to do service trips, right? And I feel like that's a whole nother yeah. like, travel like I don't even know what to call it like (laughs) dilemma that we need to go over like you'll only like I'm only going to go to the Middle East I'm only going to go to certain uh, countries in Africa to take my you know go-to photo with like (laughs) a cute little black boy orphan and then be like hey like I fulfilled my white savior complex of the year and just check that off my Instagram so I feel like that also needs to like really just go away and also um like understanding Africa, I feel like people are just like, I'm going to yeah. Africa. It's like, you're going to an entire <laughs> continent? Like, yeah. that's great. Like, hey. how long are you going to be yeah, there? Yeah, how long are you going to be there? Like, no one says, like, I'm going to Asia. It's like, I'm going to China. Like, I'm going to France, right? It's just like, you're not going to Africa. You're going to a country with it. Like, stop making, because like, Egypt's in Africa and like, Zimbabwe's in Africa and they are very different. And so we need to, like, I really like, Jessica, your term of like decolonialize. I feel like that makes so much sense because we need to stop looking at it this one homogenous continent that's identical because then you'll start breaking that like white savior complex as well. Right. Um, so mm. I just want to jump in and I want to ask to our lovely hosts um, because, you know, as representing Condé Nast Traveler and being editors, um, what can you do? Because just like she was speaking about the writing Um, when people are writing about India, they're generally not Indians. And I think most of the articles that I read at Condé Nast are written um, by white people. And so, like, how is Condé Nast going to try to internally change that? You know, because, like, because I think there's kind of this idea, and this is what I felt about the Four Seasons, there's this idea that if someone, like, if a white person isn't telling you to go to this hotel, that it doesn't have the same impact Um, Or if a white person isn't saying, like, go to this country, it doesn't have the same impact. So I'm wondering on your side, like, what are you guys doing or planning to do to get more editors, more writers of color um, on board to tell stories about countries that are full of people of color? I would say that first, like, I think that if you go back five years and you look at who is writing at Traveler and who is editing at Traveler, honest to God, probably 100% white. Five years, I mean, five years ago. I think that so much has changed for the better. Um, And our staff has gotten more diverse. Our writer base has gotten more diverse. And I think that being very intentional about not only finding people of color to write for us, but like pitching stories and making sure that we are like actively thinking like, okay, we want to go and see this place or we want to look at this hotel or we want to look at this perspective and like finding the perfect person and making sure that you know like culture and race and religion are all a part of that consideration and making sure that the best person to tell that story you know I would say like seven times out of ten is not a is not a white person um 
and and also just to chime in you know travel journalism has been historically white and Mm -hmm. writing about other cultures for centuries centuries centuries. and so I think well yes in the last five years there's been definitely been progress I mean I think the media industry in general has a lot of work to go Um, I think it we just have to keep keep on hiring more writers keep on hiring more editors of color and also we need to listen more I think it's very easy to say okay all right well um, we have diversified our staff you also need to diversify your audience and you need to listen to people and I think one of the things that we've been trying to do with the women who travel group which of course is in its very early stages is listen to the women who are out there traveling every day and all the different women that are doing it from different socioeconomic backgrounds from different countries we have people from all over the world in this group and they're all joining this group for the same reason which means that we should be writing stories for all of them I was wondering if you guys could share you know, who, you know, we've talked about basic steps that people can take. We've talked about steps that Lale and I can take. Um, who you think out there is like doing this well and right and is supporting a diverse, a diverse clientele and showcasing the diverse voices that are, you know, traveling today? Funnily enough, I think that Delta, in terms of their marketing, I think they do a really good job of being inclusive in their marketing, like billboards, emails, um, even the thing that they had in Williamsburg where you could like go and take a selfie on that wall. Um, I think they're doing a really good job on that end. So if they could just get their internal sensitivity training to get together, then they would be my fave company. I mean, I love Delta. <laughs> I'm hugely loyal. Um, And so, yeah, I appreciate their diverse marketing, even though there's still some other things they could do. I do think that they've made huge steps um, to that end. I will say as an airline, um, there have been a number of airlines over the past couple of years who have dedicated full flights to all female crews, all female pilots. Um, Ethiopian Airlines and Air India have both done it multiple times in the past where everyone from the ground crew to the pilots were all female. Um, And that was intentional, but Delta has also had the first, um, I guess, duo. So the both of the pilots that were on the plane were black earlier, I guess, l- earlier last year. It was around International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. And they had two female black pilots. Um, and that was the first time that had ever happened in the U.S. And I think that having female pilots, period, is a is a minority in the first place. And so when you consider that and you consider who can afford, um, I guess, like pilots historically can afford getting a pilot's license like it's it's going to be a I mean, white you have to be rich to become man. a pilot i'm going to assume <laughs> and, a, and a man um and so i think that like getting to see that again representation for younger girls for anyone who's interested in doing that and knows that they don't have to just be a flight attendant i think that that's really exciting and for delta have made that first step is also kind of heartening if that's a word <laughs> yes and I know we were talking earlier about brands not wanting to be political, and I don't know much about Royal Jordanian. I think I took one domestic flight of, with them years ago, but um, I don't know if you remember, like earlier this year, around the time of the travel ban, they had a couple of different ads come out that sort of addressed that. And then also, I just remember one specifically of like, it was sort of like expressing that fear of flying that Muslim men specifically would have of getting those funny looks on the plane. And I just thought that was really timely and really well done. And I don't know how... I mean, obviously, I saw it probably because of the types of channels that I'm aware of, but I would hope that it had gotten a bit of traction because I feel like that type of marketing is, you know, eye-opening for people. 
I'm going to be the not the pessimistic one and say it's very hard for me to to find a brand, um, whether it's an airline brand or not, just because, uh, again, over the past couple of years and this like forcibly removing of, of Muslim people from planes because they look a certain way or speak a different language. And it's happened on like uh, multiple yeah, and plane, different yeah. airlines. Like I think there was a definitely a Delta incident in American Airlines Southwest, like all of them. So uh, I'm not going to shout out any of those, but I feel like there's this new young entrepreneur of like young travelers of, of color. Um, I like the Muzz B&B. I don't know anything about them, but I think it's just really cool. They started something like that. Um, I think there are a couple of like Muslim traveler guides. Um, there are also, there's like this new growing atmosphere, like the circle of uh, Muslim women mm-hmm. who travel because um, for example, like very oftentimes than not Muslim women, including myself, like when like we want to go into a beach or a pool and because we cover, we would really love a space that was like kind of private. Um, and again, unless you're extraordinarily wealthy, it's not very affordable, but there has been like this new trend of finding spaces that, you know, you can have your own pool as a Muslim woman. And they're like, there is a sectioned off. That's like a gender, like a women only beach um, of some sort. And I feel like I applaud those women who really go out of their way to find um, services and places that will cater to other Muslim women so they have a chance to literally like let their <laughs> hair down um, and and have a good time and so I feel like I, I'm keeping an eye out on this like these young up-and-coming um, organizations because I feel like they get the problems and they also don't have to go through the obstacles that like major corporations have to go through of like pissing off their board or whatever their fan base and 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 they don't care because they understand there's a need for people of color to travel and to also just have a good time and so I feel like I definitely would shout them out and keep an eye out on them and would want to give my money my business to them and in the travel media space I feel like um I don't I haven't been following this closely but I think travel channel has just launched a lot of digital shows and I know um someone I follow on Instagram Onika Raymond has her own shows or multiple shows I think so I don't know what else they're doing but it seems like they have a push for diversity and then taste made also seems to have diverse hosts. So it does seem like, at least in the digital space, people are kind of getting savvy to the fact that they need to have different type, different looking people hosting their content. For sure. And speaking of social media, um, where can people find you and follow you and follow your travels and support you along the way? Jessica? You can find me at the catch me if you can that is on instagram and that is my blog and that is me on facebook and on twitter i am the c m i y c me if you can yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) and how much i am at by sarah khan that's b-y-s-a-r-a-h-k-h-a-n on twitter and instagram and then my website is by and everyone should go read the New York Times story that Sarah wrote um, about her road trip. We were uh, swapping country songs uh, <laughs> yeah. the whole way through. <laughs> I'm in Roweda. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Roweda underscore Abdel, R-O-W-A-I-D-A underscore A-B-D-E-L, because Twitter cannot fit my last name. <laughs> And where can people find you, Lale? You can find me at Lale Hannah. And I just also want to add that I would love to hear from our listeners' personal experiences as well. So um, you can join the Facebook group. You can drop us a line at women who travel at cntraveler.com. Um, and I am at Oh Hey There, Mary. 
Thank you guys so much for joining us. You can find Women Who Travel wherever you're listening to podcasts. And you can join our group. Um, we'd love to have you on Facebook. And you can find Kindness Traveler at CN Traveler on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all the things. See you soon.